which is cool. And you use it, believe me, a capacitor is, is a, is, it goes all the way back to the Leiden jar of the 1700s, right? It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a way to store electric charge. Sherlock Heffer, Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet, WFPR.FM, and in the local Franklin Mass FM radio dial 102.9. Here today, the first Monday in October, with my climate guide, Ted McIntyre. Ted, how are you doing this Monday? I'm doing I'm doing great. I mean, it's a beautiful, turns out it's a beautiful blue sky day uh, here in early October, but I saw a... I guess you can still call them tweets, but something that went across my timeline this morning that said earlier today, the sky was supposed to be blue. There were no clouds, but there was another shroud of Canadian wildfire that blew through and we may get another one. You know, now it's gone. It was Mm -hmm. midday. It's just like stuff that didn't used to happen happens and we're all just keep marching along. Right. Yeah. Indeed. But it's a, it's a beautiful fall day. Yes, it was. Uh, it was a. It was an e- interesting fall weekend. We were in New Hampshire for a family wedding, and yeah, I also saw something that came across the radar where it was unique that the smoke that came through obviously would cloud some of the peaks that we were able to see, um, but it also inverted according to the Washington Washington uh, Observatory, and it was the the smoke was underneath the clouds, and it was like really. <laughs> Wow. You know, it's just all all kinds of things are happening, all kinds. But yeah, so it's a Monday, a new week. And since it's the first Monday in October, it's also a rather governmental kickoff of sorts, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the there's a movie, I think, called The First Monday of October. But it the reason that that phrase is of significance is because for whatever reason, the Supreme Court of the United States, the SCOTUS, uh, begins its term it on the first Monday in October, and they they that's today, and so they are meeting, and for better or worse, the Supreme Court has seen a lot of press lately. I'm sure you you've seen it a lot of sort of mm-hmm. scandalous things back and forth, uh, which we can come back to. But the the reason, I guess, the reason that I think the opening of the Supreme Court is of interest on a climate perspective is because of the nature of the cases that the Supreme Court can choose to listen to, to mm-hmm. hear, so to speak, a little, quite literally to hear. So from what I've learned, I'm not a lawyer, but I play one on a podcast. Evidently, the, uh, the Supreme Court has a lot of ability to choose what cases it wants to hear. There are some instances where if two appellate courts, which are the ones just below the Supreme Court, two different courts in two different regions disagree about something, the Supreme Court has to take it has to take it up and resolve mm-hmm. it, right? But other than that, the Supreme Court can just go and find something, a case that it finds interesting, which is I think what happened in the abortion case, in various other cases where the Supreme Court says, oh yeah, I want to talk about this particular aspect of law, and they bring it up to the Supreme Court, even though there's no particular um, driving driver for it. Right? And this is what this is where you hear about this sort of um, federalist 
society funding a pipeline of cases to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court queues up these, not the Supreme Court, the federal, I mean, parts of the political spectrum queue up cases to get to the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court is interested, it plucks it up and pulls it to the top mm-hmm. and, and hears it. So the the way that has worked out in a way that's relevant to climate scientists is that there is a particular case, and I won't even pretend I know the exact name, but you'll, it comes up. Um, there's a case that is essentially intended to hear about the uh, ability of the federal government to regulate. So th- this is a buzzword. Everyone's heard it a million times. But again, from my understanding, the way it works is that Congress, starting in the 1930s, started to set up, pass a law to say, the, con- the Congress of the U.S. wants this certain kind of end result to happen. But it's too complicated for us to pass the details on. So we are going to uh, create an agency that's going to interpret the law and do what we want, right? And for climate people, that agency is the EPA, but there are lots of other agencies. The Veterans Administration, there's the F, the Federal Aviation, you know, there's all, there's, and, and, and those agencies have become the bureaucracy that is complained about, right? Because now the EPA is given responsibility under the, well, the various laws that created it to, to, to search out and end pollution of the air and the water and all that kind of stuff, right? And if you remember, the Supreme Court in a case, which I do remember called Massachusetts versus EPA, ruled that the EPA had to regulate carbon dioxide. It had to. It didn't have a choice, right? Mm-hmm. It's because the EPA had made determinations that this was scientifically sound, but it did it. All that detail never went through Congress, right? Congress never voted on what exact levels of part. I mean, and so in the history of American law, this has been challenged in different circumstances. And in the early 1980s, there was one particular lawsuit called, again, I forget the exact name, but the outcome of that lawsuit was something called the Chevron deference. Okay. And this is an ins- a case where the Supreme Court said that the, the court system, the, the Supreme Court of the United States would defer, take a deference to whatever the EPA or the whatever agency was involved, whatever they decided, they knew more about it than the Supreme Court. So the e, the Supreme Court would defer to what the EPA said, and it was in a case involving Chevron, blah, 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 blah. So it became known as the Chevron deference. But the principle was that the courts don't get involved in the action of the agency because Congress told the agency to go do something, and the agency's doing it, even though it's 50 years later on a different – okay, fine. That's been law for a long time. There's a case that the Supreme Court may choose to hear. I'm almost convinced that they will choose to hear that essentially challenges that Chevron deference idea. And the Supreme Court probably will take it up. If the Supreme Court overturns this idea of the Chevron deference, what it means is that literally what it means is that the Congress of the United States would have to pass in detail every law about what the EPA is saying, right? Where the ground, what level of P 
PFAS can be in the water, what's the level of soot can be in the air. Congress would have to literally pass it. The president would have to sign it, right? And that would, in a sense, completely gut the EPA because you know Congress is never going to pass that kind of law. It's just, mm-hmm. it can't even choose a speaker, right? It can't even fund the government. It's not going to like decide what level of, it, it doesn't have the scientific expertise. I mean, it's all kinds of stuff. But the Supreme Court is queuing itself up to essentially dismantle the EPA, the Consumer Products uh, Financial Bureau, uh, as I said, the Veterans Administration, the Federal Aviation Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission, all those things. And this is what Steve Bannon years ago, scary Steve Bannon talked about disassembling the administrative state, right? This is what these guys meant. They wanted to basically change it so that Congress would have to pass every minute rule about everything. And with the full confidence, knowing that Congress would never pass minute rules about everything. So what we have is now this thing coming up to the Supreme Court, which could basically, from a climate perspective, got the EPA, take away all its authority to do anything. And this is in a circumstance where fossil fuel interests, particularly the Koch organization, has bought one of the Supreme Court justices, right? You've seen the information where Clarence Thomas has been vacationing and making pitches at the Mm -hmm. Koch brother. So it's it's this kind of a scary circumstance. And yeah. from the perspective of climate activists, it's going to come back to reforming the Supreme Court somehow, which is a whole other topic by itself. But anyway, that's the, from my perspective, the backdrop on the first Monday in October, why it's important to be following the Supreme Court and pressing our legislators to do something about what might be an outcome here. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that make any sense or did I lose you five minutes ago? <laughs> no, no. I, I, me particularly, I've been following or at least been studying to a certain extent uh, the Supreme Court uh, for, for a bit for a variety of reasons. Um, clearly, it's one of the key linchpins in, quote, the balance of power in the government. You've got the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court primarily had been the decider in terms of the nature of the lore and what did the scope include, which is why the deference apparently is now going to get challenged um, and then force Congress to go back and rewrite the law legislation that it passed to be much more specific. And again, that's where, as you <laughs> clearly outlined in the, today's particular particular political climate, that may not be likely if they can't even agree to fund the to fund and avoid the shutdown. They're probably not going to agree and the right level of detail to continue to do stuff like that. Um, one of our uh, connections who's been in this in a separate topic conversation, I remember, and I think he also spent some time in one of the other podcasts on More Perfect Union. Uh, John Marshall Harlan was a U.S. Supreme Court justice. He was known as the great dissenter. Um, that was kind of his reputation. He served in, let's see, 19, 1877 until 1911. And some of his dissents were then resurrected, so to speak, to bring forward the civil rights legislation that did away from, uh, you know, 
and we've got that entire history. Chloe Lincoln did his emancipation, and then the our reconstruction of the South went the other way. Um, and then they started chipping away at emancipation. And then with the dissents uh, in a series of cases, he set up the argument that Thurgood Marshall, no name, no actual relation between the two, started bringing the cases back through so that we ended up with the Supreme Court uh, and the Civil Rights Act in 64, the Voting Rights Act, et cetera, um, which some of those now have started to be undone somewhat. So there's clearly a pendulum swinging back and forth to a certain extent, if you look at it that way. Um, but I certainly recommend the book. So there's a book called The Great Dissenter, written by Peter Canellis, who happens to be a Massachusetts mm -hmm. author. Um, and he takes you on that journey through the justice's life and the machinations of the court and how they were doing and how his dissents in those various cases in his term then produced kind of the argument from the other side to overturn the decisions that he had made or <laughs> disagreed with back in those days. And then somebody else finally said, oh, well, yeah, he's right. The others are wrong. So they threw him out and went the other way. So, well, yeah. I, I guess I would just, just, Argue, say that the what we are what we may see okay so none of this is going to be final till next june probably but what we may see is not some historical seesaw around a middle right what the potential of this uh this court case is traumatic and would basically upend almost everything since the new deal right since the 1930s in terms of what the government has been about and it's it's from my perspective the supreme court is the third branch of government and thinks that it has it, but the only the only authority the supreme court has it is its integrity right it doesn't have any it doesn't have an army doesn't have any policemen doesn't have any money it just has its integrity and it seems like the Supreme Court is losing its integrity mm -hmm. uh, in the current case, and the pushback is for people to raise holy heck about it, to complain to their congressmen, to point out that this is not where we want to be, and that that's because no one's voted for Justice uh, Roberts, right? I mean, he got mm -hmm. appointed. And so the question is, how do people impact what clearly could be, and already we've seen real injustices from the Supreme Court. How do we push back on that, right? And it, it yeah. can't take 50 years to, refor to to get back to where we regulate carbon. We'll all be toast by then. Uh, theoretically, if not drowned. Yeah. <laughs> One way or the other. And what was it? There was another fire or ice was another term. <laughs> I think it was a famous poet. Code. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. So anyway, yes, clearly first Monday in October, and then that leads to and towards the end of June, we start getting whatever the decisions are come out being revealed, usually one day at a, one day at a time or a couple at a time during that last week. Some of those clearly tend to come out before then, but some of them just take some time to get to that final wording of what they're going to do and bring it out. Yes. Yeah. And then related to 
protest. Uh, you had a link around the Hanscom Airport jet expansion, and I saw in the the social streams that there were people protesting at uh, Capitol Hill today uh, in Boston and uh, moving from the legislative section to uh, outside Maura Healy's office to make sure she was aware of their impact and the decisions and the impact of those decisions. If, you know, the commercial jet, naturally more private commercial jets, so the smaller jets, which on the one hand, you can make some sense in terms of, okay, take some, if Logan is busy, take the smaller ones out of Logan, but now you've got an expansion of the smaller ones. And we've talked before about, you know, the carbon footprint of an airplane. And there's also articles out there that even the compensating uh, carbon offsets don't necessarily cover them all. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough choice. And at least people are having a conversation about it. Right. And the the backdrop for this one is pretty wild, right? So the, uh, the, Oh, Department of Transportation. Uh, it's not the MBTA, but it is. It turns out that Hanscom Field, right, which used to be a military base up on Route 128, if you're unfamiliar with it, near mm-hmm. the uh, there's a up on in Bedford, right? Hanscom Field is now no longer a military base, but is a favorite place for small private jets to take off and land. Right. And you're right. It's like private jets landing at Logan just screw up the commercial jets that have 500 people on them. But put that aside for a minute. Turns Mm -hmm. out that that private jets and think think succession. Right. Think uh, Logan. What's his Logan Roy right flying across the uh, the Atlantic in a a private jet. Those things per mile. There's a we have a report here. They use 10 to 20 times more fuel per passenger than a commercial jet, right? So in terms of the impact, the climate impact of flying private jets is enormous and growing and is completely and utterly unnecessary, right? And it's like people... People with enough money, so I just full disclosure, I bought a ticket to the Powerball. So I hope to be a billionaire sometime soon myself, right? But if you've got enough money, it's easier to drive to uh to Hanscom Field, get in your private jet, fly down to Martha's Vineyard, uh, and spend the weekend, right? And it seems kind of cool, you boom boom, you're there, but it's horrifically damaging. It's incredibly now sliced the population that gets to do it. And it turns out the state of Massachusetts has chosen to increase by 300%, or I guess that's essentially tripling the hangar space for the storage of private jets at Hanscom Field, which is an invitation for more, uh, more planes to fly in and out of, uh, out of Hanscom. Mm-hmm. And so that's the genesis of the um, protest, because it's horrific on a climate front. It's just like the wrong thing to do. Yeah. I guess I, I would, I mean, I, I, I hope to interview someone from the organizations that are opposing this to give us a better, uh, better explanation of what the full story is. Mm-hmm. And cause I don't pretend to have all the details, but the private jets are horrifically climate unfriendly. There's no reason to, have more of it flying in out of Boston, especially in a state where 
we have climate goals, right? Pretty clear we want to cut these emissions. And so there you go. It's the, so the, the article, it's actually Scott Lehigh, I think. Yeah, in the Globe. He has an opinion piece. And it's pretty, pretty impressive. Pretty impressive argument that this should not be done. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Yeah, I think the, aside from the climate we're related to that, certainly there's an economic justice aspect of that as well, to the extent that, as you indicated, certainly you and I normally are not going to be able to afford that. We don't have a private jet fleet at our beck and call. It's pricing us out of the market, and yet those for whom it is okay, they have the wherewithal, they can go ahead and do that. Um, and thereby the, quote, the little folks are just going to suffer from all the climate change. Climate right. effects of that. Right. So, yeah. The little people. Yes. Yeah. The, I mean, yes. and just thinking back, I remember working for a company. I think they had a helicopter landing pad, right? So you could bring the executive in and sure. save five minutes. And mm-hmm. of course, this goes back to my continuous question of if it took you a few days to fly from Boston to China, would the economic cycles of the world come to a halt? No. Right. right? If your executive is five minutes, takes him five minutes longer to get to his next meeting and doesn't have a helicopter, mm-hmm. is that going to ruin the company? No. It's all about the ego of the CEO who wants to have a shiny helicopter come get him. And it's for the rest of us are stuck with the consequences of which are horrific and multi-millennial i guess if i could mm-hmm. coin a phrase yeah. yeah so there you go yeah and there is the the one silver lining if anything in that is that at least due to some of those strategically placed helipads they can at least be used for medevac uh occasions to provide some more life-saving support for those cases that truly need it because otherwise where would you land a helicopter <laughs> especially in a dense place so yeah, but other than that, um, yeah, the wrong move, which is not the only one we've been hearing about, too, because r- w- isn't that pipeline looking for an expansion, you know, down so the Enbridge place? I mean, this this is also something going in the wrong direction. The wrong direction. So this, again, is, well, let me say this. The thing about fossil fuel companies and the, the capital, the money, that's out there is that it never it never sleeps and you can you think that you can fight it and end a pipeline and take a victory, but they just retreat for a couple of years and restart. So the story that is now emerging, and we've got a couple of links to uh, the Globe and, and WBUR, but the story that's now emerging is the following: that there is a pipeline of natural gas. It carries natural gas from Pennsylvania into Boston. In fact, we go into details. It, it passes it on, passes the natural gas on to go up to Canada. Okay, it's called the Algonquin Pipeline. Mm-hmm. It has been there probably fifty or sixty years now. And quite honestly, if if you're in Massachusetts or certainly in the Boston area, south, southeastern Massachusetts, and you're cooking your stove or heating your house with gas, you're probably burning gas that came through the Algonquin pipeline. Okay. Yeah. So the Enbridge, which is a big Canadian fossil fuel company that owns this pipeline, has proposed to 
enhance it, to make it bigger, to carry more natural gas. And that would probably involve, um, since the pipeline already exists, it would probably have existing rights of way, right? They might dig up some pipeline and put in bigger pipeline. They might put some parallel pipe, but they got kind of a head start because there's already a pipeline there. But the state does not need to pay for, because of course the ratepayers are ultimately going to pay for a new pipeline, does not need to pay for more fossil fuel infrastructure. Especially, it flipped me out when I started thinking about it, this pipeline that is just in its infancy, just being proposed now, would probably be complete sometime in the year 2029, right? just before the year 2030 that we've talked about so much. In the year 2029, and then in 2029, it would begin its likely 70-year lifetime, which means that if you complete this pipeline, it's going to be running natural gas in the year 2099, which is way past the 2050 that we all say we need to be off fossil fuels, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's and what comes what comes around is a big debate about whether or not we need more natural gas here in the state. Um, there's a lot of arguments that get thrown around back and forth. I can I mean, to try and review some of them. There are uh, uh, the state is overly dependent, as we say now, on natural gas because Massachusetts now uses natural gas to heat your home and to generate electricity. So when it gets cold, everybody turns up their heat. There's not enough natural gas left to power the electrical plants. And so the company, the Enbridge says, oh, we got to have bigger pipelines, right? And the issue is that it only gets cold for relatively limited amounts of time during the winter, right? But what happens is that the other 364 days of the year, the extra gas capacity gets pumped up to Canada and exported so that someone's making a profit. So really, really, while the Enbridge may be saying, oh, you know, we're trying to protect you from a cold day, really what they want is more capacity to pump more gas through Boston up to Canada and, and then export it. And mm -hmm. one of, so let me just say, I think, I think, I think, I think that this pipeline comes very, very close to Franklin if it does not, in fact, pass through Franklin, right? It is a real and present thing that is going to happen here in this area and, of course, across the, across the state. So, again, the, everyone thinks that the compressor, not everyone, but I mean, the compressor station in Weymouth, right, which has been an environmental justice battle and, I mean, oh, well, that's in Weymouth. It doesn't bother me. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, here you go. This pipeline is going to come very close to us. It's going to feed the Weymouth compressor. And Enbridge has said well, they don't need to expand the Weymouth compressor, but put your hand on your wallet because those guys don't ever tell the truth mm -hmm. in my, my estimation. So the good news is that the pipeline is just being proposed now. It's probably got a six or seven year path before they could, before it's completed. And so for my money, now is the time to oppose it. The way that we can oppose it is by there are certain, despite the fact that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, so the federal government makes the big decisions about whether or not to build a pipeline, it does require state and local permits. 
Mm-hmm. If the thing does not get those state and local permits, it can't get built. So there's just so dear listener, you know, again, this is sort of planting a seed that you, this is something that's coming. Next time you hear about it, you can say, ah, I heard it first on the on uh, making sense of climate, right? Mm-hmm. I heard, and and it's floating out there as a topic. So. Yeah, and I, I I will agree with you. You heard it first here because we were not producing these recordings back in 2017, 18, and 19 when my archives show that the Atlantic Bridge Project, if this is indeed related to that, it does indeed go through Franklin. We have an existing, I believe it's an 18-inch pipe, and they were proposing to put parallel to it a 30-inch pipe using the existing way. Um, and Governor Baker at the time uh, made the approval, which then led to the Weymouth approvals. Um, but then there was something else that fell apart from the pipeline. So it kind of died away and not completely because <laughs> it sounds like it's coming back. Um, so, yeah, yeah I mean, we, we do have archives that go back and show some of the information stations there was a climate action thing held in july of 2017 and 2020 so yeah there was a bunch of reporting that at least was done i can't i remember meeting then some folks in some public places Uh um but not necessarily getting to an actual information session per se other than it may have been like a you know the harvest festival strawberry stroll something like that where they were holding booths and trying to talk up what was going on, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. Well, it's, it's it's interesting that the, I mean, you were talking about the American Bridge Pipeline that you've documented went through Franklin. I think that a company like Enbridge will give different names to different sections of the pipeline. They, mm-hmm. they, they're very clever, right? And sort of shrouding in sort of this uh, opaque thing, just how big a project it is. And so I guess I really do not know if this, thing that's currently being proposed goes through Franklin, but there is a pipeline in Franklin and it easily could because there's a thousand different names that get thrown up and right. it's all uh, you know, sort of a, an effort to keep the average person sort of in the dark or at least confused about what's actually happening. So, Yeah, I'll have to go back. I'll, I'll include some of the links that at least I can validate seem to be the ones that are more current and refer to that Atlantic Bridge project. Uh, the links seem to be valid. Um, Enbridge, I'm sure, has a current project update page. And oh, if it yeah. indeed looks like the screen captures the one that I had before, then lo and behold, go. it looks like it was. <laughs> and I, so. if, if anyone's listening wants to get a more professional assessment, one of the links was to uh, a podcast with Miriam Wasser at WBUR, who's quite good. And she gave a 15 minute short podcast sort of explanation of what's going on. And it's informative. I mean, that was it forewarned yeah. is forearmed or however the phrase goes. Yep, yep, that's what it is. Knowledge is power, all those things. Just knowing mm-hmm. what's going on helps you a lot. So be aware the devil is in the details. That's right. That's right. Not all that glitters is gold. <laughs> There's a number of things we can throw in there as well. But in the meantime, we'll shift to another topic about bikes and batteries. And you found a link to a bike that actually doesn't even use a battery. (laughs) This is so this is really, really a cool thing. Again, for people who may or may not think about this a lot or think about electronics, right? 
in, in electricity, you have conductors, like if you're an electrician, right? There's a conductor. What's a conductor? It's a wire, right? It's copper. The electricity likes to go. It's what's called a conductor. There's something, a resistor, which is essentially something that prevents the electricity from moving. A very descriptive name. There's something else you've probably heard of called a capacitor, right? So a capacitor, as the name implies, is able to hold electric charge. So okay, it holds it's capacity. Able, it holds capacity. It's got a capacity to store elect, electrons in it, right? Which is cool. And you use it, believe me, a capacitor is is a, it's, it goes all the way back to the Leiden jar of the 1700s, right? It's, mm-hmm. a, a, it's a way to store electric charge. Fine, fine. In the modern age, you're able to build something called an ultra capacitor which is a, basically a really super cool capacitor that stores a lot of electrical charge, okay? What's nice about the ultra capacitors as a technology is that they they tend to use very benign sub- substances, right? There's no weird um, metals that you can't pronounce that have to be extracted from small children in, in Tibet or something, right? Mm-hmm. It's a like, really mundane kind of thing, an ultra capacitor hold a lot of electric charge, essentially a lot of power, right, that you can do stuff with. And and ultracapacitors are distinct because like a battery, a lithium battery that you might have in your bicycle is a chemical process by which the the electricity is generated, whereas the capacitor is just a physical ability to hold the charge. It's a quite different thing, much safer. more, More efficient too, I would say, it would seem to be. It, it, you can charge it up faster. You can. It, re- it would store more, retain it more, as opposed to with any chemical transaction, you're going to give off something, i.e., heat, <laughs> and yeah. thereby lose something in the process. So I saw this thing where the bike designer, who's also an electronics engineer or somebody in France, has invented an electrical bike, electrically powered bike, which of course is all the rage among climate people because it so beautifully solves so many problems, right? Mm-hmm. Electric bikes are really very useful. This gentleman, this company has taken the lithium battery out of the electric bike and put in an ultra capacitor. And so now you've got an ultra capacitor that's small enough and light enough that you can think about putting it on a bike, yet at the same time has enough, stores enough electrons to allow you to pedal your bike along. And in mm-hmm. fact, what's really cool is that this system that's been invented is that the bike becomes almost like your Prius hybrid in that it it captures the electricity when you put the brakes on. It sort of puts some electrons back in the ultra capacitor. And so, so again, it regenerates. It's, it's regenerated, exactly. And so it is a beautiful solution. Um, it's a beautiful new technology. And again, comes back to the thing we keep saying is that we've just begun to scratch the surface of what's possible, right? When you put clever people on a problem, all of a sudden, amazing things start to fall out. You have this bike that is environmentally benign, a more environmentally benign than a lithium battery. It's electric. You can, you know, it's a cargo bike. You pedal your kids to school on your newly defined bike lanes in your climate-friendly town, right, where you're trying to reduce traffic flow, et cetera, et cetera. Really interesting. So if you're a bike person, which I'm becoming more and more of, uh, this is kind of an interesting article. But the whole question of bikes and batteries 
by leading to talking about batteries leads to a much bigger question about, you know, why are batteries so important all of a sudden? And in in this instance, again, dear listener, you the you got to think battery. A battery is not like the triple the the D battery you used to put in a flashlight, right? A battery has a whole different, larger meaning, and that a battery is someplace where you can literally store energy, right? So your D battery that you get, or your double A battery that you put in your fire fire alarm, right? That is essentially a little container of stored energy that you're going to extract by having a chemical reaction that generates the voltage and blah, 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 blah. The, there are many other ways of things you can call a battery, and they are much bigger and can store more energy, and they can be used in what's called grid storage. That is to say, the electrical grid can store enough you can have a battery on the electrical grid that stores enough energy to be meaningful in managing how the grid operates and mm-hmm. solves many problems. And it's a useful um, a useful thing to know about because grid storage is going to become more and more important. And the article that we um, flashed on was an article about an enormous increase in this what's called grid battery storage in Texas in California, but primarily in Texas. And that storage allowed Texas to sneak through the summer without having massive blackouts. Mm. Right? So why is that? Texas got hot as blazes, right? Everybody turns on their air conditioner at five in the afternoon and you have this enormous demand at a, that last two or three hours max, right? When it's really hot and everyone's getting home. And it's quite different from two in the morning when everyone's asleep, just different. So mm-hmm. you have this peak of demand at five in the afternoon. And what happens is because you have battery storage, you can throw the switch on the battery and you get enough power to last two or three hours. So all you need to get through this peak moment of demand for electricity and the whole grid doesn't collapse, right? Mm-hmm. The other option is for the grid to collapse at five <laughs> o'clock and then everyone's out of power for three days while they figure out what's going on. Whereas if you have the battery storage, you kind of sneak past that moment and the grid stays alive. And what's, and of course, from a climate perspective, the battery storage does not generate any uh, carbon dioxide because the, the way things work currently or have in the past is that there is a special dedicated power plant called a peaker power plant that only turns on for three hours a year but gives you the power you need in those extreme circumstances mm-hmm. right and those plants tend to be very polluting blah, blah, the whole backstory but the idea is that you can have a battery that is ready to go clean and prevents these kind of outages and just to Forgive me, Steve, I got wound up. But I mean, if you back <laughs> up to the idea of clever people um, solving problems, like the French guy with a, the ultra-capacitor bike, here in Massachusetts, there is a company that has invented a battery. And now, this is a grid, grid storage, mega-scale battery, okay, that is essentially made out of iron filings, which are extremely common, environmentally friendly, Right. And strangely enough, the process of rusting of the iron is what generates the, the free electrons. Mm. And so the battery 
makes the, the iron rusty and then it charges up and takes all the rust away and then it lets it get rust. But the thing of it is it's incredibly dirt cheap because the iron is cheap, right? And you can build things that last for a week, supplying power for a week. It's a company in Massachusetts, right? Again, all the jobs in Massachusetts from this, mm -hmm. and they're going to be in big demand. I think it, I don't own, they don't have any stocks. So I, I think it's called Form Energy. It's just a great idea. Mm -hmm. It's like, go, 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 go. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels. So, listeners, so the the parallel I would draw to is clearly whenever we're talking about electric current, we're talking about a flow. It's very much like water. You've got a flow of water through the pipes, and every once in a while, you need to have a storage, i.e., either a water tank or a reservoir <clears throat> that does kind of that storage uh, a principle. And the water tanks allow for the water pressure to be maintained through the flow. Um, those are some of the parallels that electrical world is not that different. It just deals in electrical charge. Um, and the batteries, storage pieces, capacitors, the large capacitors, the ultra capacitors allow for those both storage and maintaining that quote peak flow at the right uh, hertz <laughs> level. Yeah. Yeah, gigahertz, yeah. megahertz, whatever, kilohertz, whatever the, the, the term needs to be for uh, how it gets stepped down from DC to the current. Right. AC you know, to DC and uh, high voltage. And all that kind of stuff. Again. Yeah, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, the, the whole question of, yeah, the electrical grid as sort of mundane and apparently uninteresting as as you might think, it turns out to be a fascinating beast that over the next 20, 30 years is going to have to be revamped. And like people, I, I guess I, the analogy is sort of like everyone was interested in the Apollo moonshot or, or SpaceX, right? People are real. You don't need to know the details, right? You don't need to know exactly mm -hmm. uh, how the rocket works, but it's pretty cool that it's going and you can support it and be interested in it without pretending to be uh Verna von Braun and understand all the details. Right. Yeah. And I think we've talked in prior sessions a couple of times, even most recently with Rep Roy, um, with the wind power and those stations generating via a cable from the offshore onshore and the concept of having kind of a massive offshore cable to link all the different wind power fields to in more of a offshore grid concept, which at some point in time, we've also in prior sessions talked about kind of the need for a two-way flow on the grid. Generally, it's coming from the power generator out through to all of us. But at some point in time, especially as we get more and more solar panels and more and more solar installations, and I think we've talked, even in Franklin, we've got over 400 homes that have solar panel systems. Each of them probably has a little mini storage, which then feeds National Grid from time to time. They probably have some excess capacity. So National Grid could come back and, you know, give us a little bit of that storage if they needed to at some point. So Steve, yeah, the, I mean, inter it, it, the interconnections should all be there. But in the old world, they weren't. And, and, and. It's exactly to your point, as more and more electric vehicles come around, they are a further way to store power. So you can imagine that the grid is smart enough to tap into people's automobiles if they really, really need electricity mm -hmm. in an emergency, right? right? And so 
you're absolutely right. The two-way grid, that's a whole, that's an hour oven by itself that maybe we need to talk about. But it's really very interesting as the ideas floating around there. And there's some economic incentives currently, because I think Rep. Roy talked of his charging his car in the off hours at a lesser rate to offset the peak demands that we're talking about. And yeah, at some point in time, if he's charging it even in the off hours or it is charged and then power blips in his house, well, now he's got a battery that he can charge the house or some portion of the house. Maybe not the whole thing, but some portion of it. The concepts, you know, get intriguing because once you start following this domino to that domino down this way, it's like, where do we end up? Hopefully in a happy place. Yeah, that's, that's the goal. That's the plan. As opposed to drowning because we're getting eight inches of rain in an hour or whatever. So, yeah. 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 I mean, the whole just, just, yeah. I mean, just in passing, we should not ignore the fact that New York almost drowned last week in a surprise eight inch rainstorm and LaGuardia Airport was, was out of commission because it was flooded. I mean, these are, and the governor of New York is now saying this is the new normal in quotation marks. But I just heard, Michael Mann on TV saying that, you know, the new normal is an inc- an ever-shifting baseline. Right? It's not mm-hmm. like it just gets worse and worse, right? So the new normal yeah. is that things keep changing. But New York had a bad day and it should be a – it should impress upon everybody the reality of what's happening. And, and again, not to beat a dead horse, but we've got to do yeah. something. But you can't look at those things from New York and say, oh, this is fine. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I won't worry about this. No. No, that's why we had earlier one of our episodes with our own fire chief, uh, McLaughlin, who is our e- emergency management uh, lead. And we talked about we if we were to get six or eight inches in our, an hour, clearly their first response is going to be to assist the people in the flooded zones, get them out into some shelters and safety, et cetera. Overall, our natural environment is such that we shouldn't be too bad, but let's hope that it's actually the case. I mean, because you don't want to just practice. How can you practice without? <laughs> yeah, the, we don't want to go there. Let's hope we it, avoid it. But on, it on, is a, happening. On, on a happier note, I'll just say, Steve, I'll send you the link to um, I, may, I went down to New York City for a big march on the 17th of September, and I was able to talk to people. Uh, and got some sound. So uh, if you want to hear about, if you actually want to have a feel for what it was like marching along in a, pro, in a climate rally and what people had to say, that podcast is available. It's kind of mm. fun. So Sounds good. Yeah, we'll include the link in the show notes. Absolutely. If not, share the entire link as well. Yes. <laughs> yes. All good. Well, thank you again, even on this Monday, the first Monday of October, helping me make (laughs) some sense of the climate. And there's just so much going on. We could spend hours and hours and hours. (laughs) It's a lot. We'll take a little bit of time. And hopefully the listeners will have survived this particular dose and come back for another one in a couple of weeks. (laughs) Yes, yes. It's like eating a bullion cube. Yes, yeah. To dissolve first (laughs) well thank you again and listeners thank you for listening come back if you've got particular questions certainly shoot them along to us uh we'll be free to tackle those in a future episode and we do this of course because franklin matters 
We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. By the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.